0: We are in this message here. Is this your first time with us? I'm excited that you're here. You're really only, you're in week number two of this series. It's kind of a five-part series, but all of these messages kind of lock together. They work together. And what we've been doing is every week, and what we'll continue to do is each week, we are talking about how, as our society is becoming more and more religiously diverse, um, we're acknowledging that there's a, a conflict between, between um, the views of the church and then the views of the world. And we're just really openly talking about these conflicts, but also we're looking at Paul's letters to the various churches in the New Testament. And we're seeing how he instructs The early church on how to respond with similar issues, seeing that there are conflicts that were taking place even then. And Paul is addressing the early church to how they're supposed to respond to false teachings, um, respond to false practices that were not just happening culturally, but were happening or were kind of like creeping into the church. And then we're looking at how they apply to us today. Last week, we talked about the Christ conflict, uh, but we talked about this big idea of the spiritual conflict, that everything that we are part of is is influenced in some way, shape, or form spiritually. We're trying to be very true to the text. Kind of our anchor text is in Colossians 2, verse 8, where it says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by... hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on the human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than of Christ. You'll see the graphic on the screen behind me, but it acknowledges that we're in a spiritual conflict. And spiritual forces influence our our philosophical perspective, which influences societal trends, like just different things, how they play out in society where we live, it influences and shows itself in political views and even influences politics, but then it also slips into the church, and we're, every week, talking about these different topics. This week, uh, we're going to talk about the philosophical conflict, Um, and instantly when, when the word philosophy is presented, there's two different groups of people. Oh yeah, we're going here, like finally. And then there's other people that hear the word philosophy, and it's like, oh, like <laughs> I'm not here for that. I I wish I would have I wish I would have stayed home today. But I, what I want to do is kind of let you know that that philosophy's maybe not as intimidating as you might think at first glance. The word philosophy. It comes from the Greek word, which just means this. It means the love of wisdom. It means the love of wisdom, and by definition, it's the study of fundamental nature of knowledge, of knowledge, uh, of reality, and of existence. This is what philosophy is, and the world that we live in has been heavily influenced by ancient philosophy it's it's the western culture which is where we live greek philosophy is 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 a, just a part of life and it's not just in like this big idea that philosophy exists and it's in the social construct it's literally in all of us philosophy and it plays out in a variety of ways but it plays out in in small everyday situations, depending on what type of philosophy or school of philosophy that you subscribe to knowingly or unknowingly, there are several different lanes of philosophy. Let me just start by saying that today we're going to kind of talk about four, but I think all of you will be able to identify in some way, shape or form with one of these lanes just by who you are. But like I said, it plays out in just everyday things. Last week we had a rainstorm on Sunday. I didn't know it. I was preaching and I guess there was like this monsoon that came through. It was just, it was wild. But even when it comes to rain, depending on the type of philosophy that you subscribe to, determines the way you even look at rain. We've got a comic here that'll show you what this means. If you're a skeptic, When it rains, you you might think, who can even prove that it's truly raining? Is this all just an alternate reality? Like I don't believe it. This is obviously exaggerated, but you get the idea. A cynic says, look at all these fools carrying an umbrella. (laughs) Only a fool carries an umbrella. There's another school of thought that's a stoic. And when it's raining, they say, alas, I cannot change the weather. It's just... It is happening except the reality. And then you've got what are called Epicureans um, who just like, puddles! <laughs> like This is amazing, the greatest thing ever. All of these things, it's a, it's a funny picture of different ways that we live and interpret the world that we live in. But we also see some of these philosophies. Actually, I'm just going to lean into those four. But we see some of these philosophies in modern day phrases. I did this in the first service and uh, the room was full of people and it was amazing going through these four people. When I would talk about one, 25% of the room would be like, yep, it was like, that's them. And then I'd say the next one and 25% of their hand if, if I say your thing. But you do see these philosophies come out in a variety of ways. But a statement like this, I question everything because I need facts to prove what's true. It's hilarious. (laughs) 25% just said, yep. (laughs) You're smiling, or or just even internally, like you're not going to show your cards, but internally you're like, (laughs) that's me. And that's true, by the way. (laughs) This is a philosophy of skepticism. And I want to tell you this, all of these aren't bad in and of themselves. I don't know what it is, but modern day world is taking the word skeptic and say, oh, that's horrific. No, this is just the philosophy, a school of philosophy called skepticism. And the truth is skeptics want facts to validate any claim. And where there's a lack of, of proof, they lack belief. And again, it's really strong in many areas but that also applies to faith things. So skeptics can find it really difficult to believe the Bible um, or religion or morals, but it's literally just because a school of philosophy, oftentimes they don't miss the mark because facts are what authenticates a claim. Another lane of philosophy, so this is for another 25% of you, is this. I I don't trust people because they're only interested in themselves. I love it. Some of you are like, "Yep," and then some of you, your spouse went like this to you. I don't trust people because they're only interested in themselves. Uh, This is called cynicism, which is a school of philosophy. And this idea or lifestyle might protect someone from manipulation and deception, but also it can cause you not to trust anyone, including God, (laughs) including leaders. If you find yourself in that category, really trust you. And it's cynicism. Again, this is just an observation to different schools of philosophy. We ask ourselves why, why would a cynic think like that? Because at the core level of who they are, um, they believe people's motives are selfish. It's, it's all about them. So you see, there's pros and cons to each of these. Another one is called a stoic. And they would say something like this, I accept what I can't change and focus on what I can, especially my character and my reactions. Like, these are things that I can control, so I'm going to control those things. And the things that I can't change, it's okay. I accept that, but I'm going to focus on what I can. And again, this is called Stoicism. If you know a Stoic, or you are a Stoic, or you live with a Stoic, a Stoic is often about self-mastery. Like, high-performing. High-performing. And things that they can control, they nearly master. And uh, this may help someone... To not be controlled by emotions or reactions, for a Stoic emotions are poison. Like, I hate emotions. Like, like get the emotions out of the way. If you're a Stoic and you read books, um, you skip through the parts where it gets to the stories. Like, <laughs> I don't need the fluff. Just give me the meat. That's what a Stoic does. Again, it's not bad in and of itself, but it can lead to, to an unhealthy self-reliance. Because when you can master self, then you can rely on self, and sometimes Stoics disregard their need for God. And then you've got what's called an Epicurean, and their motto might be something like, I just enjoy life, and I avoid pain. Like, I'm going to enjoy life, and I'm going to live a life that (laughs) tries to avoid pain at every moment level i just want to be happy and not worry about anything all of these are lanes or schools of philosophy that are actually greek philosophies for the epicurean they oftentimes live a life that is full of fun is full of enjoyment and oftentimes avoids pain but it can lead someone to pursue only things that feel good or pleasure leads to happiness and what happens is a slight growth because growth is uncomfortable philosophies aren't bad by themselves but philosophy philosophies apart from christ are extremely dangerous they're empty they're hollow they're deceptive and why they're so dangerous because the way that we think and the school of thought that we subscribe to becomes the source of truth that we live by. So apart from Christ, if that thing, whatever category you found yourself in, apart from Christ, what that becomes is the very thing that you anchor your life to. For the skeptic, I will only Believe that which is factually true. And if I can't prove it, I won't believe it. So that becomes what you live by. For the Epicurean, and you could fill this in with everybody, if it ain't fun or it hurts, I don't want any part of it. All of these things apart from Christ are dangerous. And we actually see that all of our philosophies, all of our schools of thought are influenced in the same way we talked about last week. They're influenced by the spiritual realm as well. So the very way that we process and think and live is fueled or influenced by a spirit. Again, last week, but then James talks about it, and he uses the words. He says it's either influenced by something heavenly or something demonic. He says it in James chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. It says this, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts do not boast and be false to the truth. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. He's like, that, that's not heavenly. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice, but... The wisdom from above, he says, is first pure, then peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. He says it's impartial and it's sincere. It is spiritually influenced. And the wild thing about our philosophy is our philosophy informs how we think, imagine, act in life. It's a big deal to be aware of how you think or even the side of this because our our philosophy informs things like big questions that all of us have. Our philosophy influences the question, why are we even here? (laughs) I'm not talking about like, well, yeah, even here. Why are we in church right now? But why are we on planet Earth? Why are we here? It informs things like questions like, what happens when we die? It answers or inform, informs questions like, do we have a free will? What's right and what's wrong? Like, ethics. It answers big questions like, what, is a, what does a just society actually look like? Big questions, but also other questions about like sexuality, about family, about politics, and and other societal issues, um, which is actually kind of where we're going next week, which is, again, just a nice little disclaimer to let you know 9 to 11s will be open. But this is the world that we live in But it's been like this since the church was birthed. These philosophies that have influenced us today and are still influencing us today are the same things that were happening in the first century church that we see Paul writing to, that we see James addressing, that we see these New Testament authors addressing in the church. It's the same thing. The first century church faced significant challenges from Greek philosophies. And what they were doing is they were, they were trying to explain a way of living through human wisdom. Like you can just figure it out up here and uh, through reasoning apart from Christ. And it was creeping into the church. We're going to get into a big body of text here in just a minute. I'd encourage you, you can open up your Bibles or your phone, whatever you got, to Acts 17. We're going to be in like 16 verses, and that's basically the rest of the message. But I'm going to give you just a a brief contextual look to show you the Christ conflict has been there for a long time. So what's about to take place in Acts 17 is Paul is in Athens, Athens. Uh, it was just a fun fact. It's Ath- the the city of Athens is named after Athena, who is the Greek goddess of wisdom. And Athena, or and Athens, had been like the, become this epicenter for where you can gather wisdom. It was like this place where. The highest scholars met where they would debate, where they would learn, where they would go head to head and they would learn or or try to sway other people's opinions. So Paul finds himself in the midst of scholars and these highly intellectual philosophers in Acts chapter 17, verse 16 is where we'll start. It says this. And I encourage you, put yourself in the body of text. Like, be there with them. Verse 16 says this, now while Paul was provoked, it was provoked within him because he's in Athens and he sees this city that's full of idols. This city that's known for wisdom has got idols all over it. In verse 17 it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Reasoned, when you go look at it, it's like heavy conversation. You ever been in conversations that make your head hurt? Like (laughs) some of you are like, I'm in school. It happens every day. But like it's the highly intellectual, a lot of debating. That's what's taking place. And it says that he's in the synagogue I mean, these are the spots where high level thinkers are and high level teachers. Some rabbis are in there and it says every day he's with them for the people that would just, that they would be there. Verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also talked with them. It says, and some said, what, (laughs) what does this babbler wish to say? Like instantly putting him in his place. They say that about Paul. It says, what does this babbler have to say? But others said, he seems to be like this preacher of some foreign divinities. Like he's different. And it's saying because Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Understand this, that scholars and philosophers of those days are, are teaching centuries old schools of thought. That colleges and Institutions are set up to teach. Paul is coming in teaching Jesus and the resurrection, and this has only happened about 20 years ago at this point. So it is a it is a new lane of thinking. And some of them are like, nah, I, I ain't down with that. Like, wh- who's this young gun coming in? Who's this babbler coming in? But then it says that others would kind of just hear and receive it. In verse 19. It says, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, and what this place was, was it was this area that it was a spot for the rulers of Athens and to hold trials at this place. Um, this would be the debate stage that would take place. Um, this is where they would discuss the most important matters. So while... Paul is having these conversations in Athens, they take him and bring him to this spot where the people are, the big time thinkers. And they take him there and they say this, they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. says, because you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. It says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So these are people that are constantly ingesting, constantly receiving. They're the ones that are always listening to podcasts. I've got a friend that says, have you heard this podcast? This, this one, I'm like, yo, like, do you do anything else but like... They are constantly receiving, and even these people that are constantly ingesting content, they're like, Paul, what you're saying is different than what I've been hearing. And it says that Paul, standing in the midst of these people, he says this, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way, you're very religious, And then you see Paul shift. This young gun with a new philosophy. He says this, he says, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. So again, realize he's in this city full of idols. He passes along and he sees all of these idols that the philosophers and the schools of thought have built, and have taught around. It says that he sees them, he passes along, he observes the objects of your worship, and he says, I found on an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. He says this thing that you're teaching so much, this thing that you're building your life on, that you're worshiping you in your own admission, have said, this God is unknown to me. It's funny, we were just worshiping a song and I leaned over to my son because in the third song we sang, um, the mystery that can be known. Paul's saying, you've got an unknown God, but he's about to say, but I know him. He says, to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, he says, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in the temples made by man. He says, the places. That, this is not the dwelling place of the known God. He says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He's starting to put the pressure on them. Since he himself gives to all mankind life, gives to all mankind breath, gives to all mankind everything. It says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's just, he's proclaiming the supremacy of God at this point. He's like, you have short-souled God. He doesn't need you, uh, but we need him. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying. He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. He makes God remarkably big, bigger, larger than life, bigger than what anything they've ever done. And in their minds, a supreme God, a divine God like that would be so distant from man. And Paul is in this place with the greatest philosophers of the day. And he's saying, but he's not far from you even right now. And then he quotes one of their own philosophers. <laughs> when you just go look at the next phrase that's in italics, it's, it, he begins to quote someone else. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, he says, for we are indeed his offspring. Remember, God created man in his own image. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold. He's like, we were made in his image. We shouldn't think that he's like gold or like silver or stone or this image that we've formed, that we've made, that we've manipulated into what we imagine him to think. Uh, it's not an art or an imagination of man. He says, it's done. He says, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31 says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. It says, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Some of the people in this audience would have witnessed a man raised from the dead some of them again this is only about 20 years post resurrection would have known exactly what he's speaking of here paul's saying that that man that came and lived and did some incredible things and y'all we crucified him and then he died he was buried and he rose to life again the whole the great exchange for our sin he's going to judge one day he's directly tying the hope, the answer to all of the schools of thought and philosophies back to this one man, Jesus, this God, Jesus. It says, now when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some of the people, they mocked it. Some of them, and some of you, you, you've heard that, and it's like disregard. As Paul's saying this, proclaiming truth and debating, some said, you're a fool. And it says that some said, when are we going to hear about this again? Something was happening inside of him. Paul, in that set of scriptures, Paul is saying, I know that you are religious, He's saying, I know that you have a desire for God. He's saying, but you guys don't know him. You've got all the questions, all the thoughts, all the things that you think are the answers. He says, you don't know him. He says, but I do. And then he says, if you want wisdom, if you want good philosophy, he says, then you need to know the source of wisdom, the one true God. He says, you don't have to scratch and claw your way to understanding. It says that the answer was right in front of you. He says, he is not distant from you. God is the source of wisdom. And then in verse 31, which we just read, he says that the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, he says that, he said, that's all that you need to know that the assurance of truth is right there. He says the gospel is the revealer of wisdom. It's amazing that the gospel, for every one of these schools of philosophy, satisfies the deepest need that each philosophy actually has. For the Epicurean, the puddles person... (laughs) that's constantly looking for happiness, that's trying to avoid pain, that Jesus and the gospel actually promises joy, promises fulfillment, and then eternally says one day there will be no pain and suffering. Jesus himself is the wisdom that the Epicureans so desired. Oh, for the skeptic, that the facts are what's desired. I can't believe until I see, you see Jesus walk the earth after he resurrects and comes face to face with a skeptic named Thomas. And he says, Thomas, I mean, Thomas is like, yo, this is a ghost. The stories in the New Testament, the skeptic, they call him Doubting Thomas. You could call him the Skeptic Thomas. He said, Jesus, there ain't no way this is you. I watched you die. What does he do? He doesn't say, just believe, you fool. (laughs) He says, here's the facts. Here's the scars. And the skeptic's heart was illuminated. And he became the churching for, for the cynic that says, I can't trust people because their motives are always about themselves. This man named Jesus descends from heaven and lives a life that's ridiculously selfless. (laughs) not just in action, but in every part of his life, he gives his life for people. And he displays that his motives were not about him at all because he had opportunity to totally disband the whole thing. said at any moment he could have called upon hundreds of angels to get him out of this situation, but because his motives were for others, the cynic's heart is for the first time totally Wow. And for the Stoic that says, I'm just going to accept what I can't change, when the Stoic realizes that there is a problem that they can't change and it is impossible to reconcile this problem called sin, and they can't fix it, they can't figure it out, and they just have to deal with it. For a Stoic apart from Christ that realizes sin is a reality, oh, it's devastating because sin comes with a cost. Sin comes with the cost, the price of separation from God where we were were created to be close. For a Stoic to accept that reality is devastating. But then for a Stoic to realize and see and believe and trust, he died, he resurrected so that the thing that we couldn't change, our relationship with God, he changed for us. When Jesus becomes the source of wisdom for any school of philosophy, it changes the very way that we live our life. Three very quick questions for you to ask about your philosophy. What or who is influencing my philosophy? What or who? Is it the Spirit of God or is it the Spirit of the world? Sometimes these are easy to answer. Sometimes they are not easy to answer. I think that this takes illumination from the Holy Spirit. Lord search my heart would you reveal to me what's actually influencing my philosophy a lot of the ways that you can see what's influencing your philosophy philosophy is by asking the next question the next question being what lifestyle is my philosophy promoting what i mean by that is is my life promoting biblical holiness does it look like god <laughs> Does it align with the word of God? Or is my philosophy promoting selfish ambition? Fulfillment of just myself? Well, that's a way that you can answer some of those questions. And the third, the last question is this, where is my philosophy leading? at the end of the day is the way that i think and the way that i act leading to glorifying god like is my life really about glorifying god and the way that i'm i work <laughs> and the way that i live and the way that i go to school and the way that i interact with other people is my lifestyle glorifying god or Is it glorifying myself? The last scripture, and then we'll pray, is this. It's Paul, yet again, talking to the church. And he's talking to the church after one of these types of conversations where it was, it was all about Jesus. It was a conundrum, and it got these high-level thinkers in a conundrum because they had to make a decision to either put all their eggs in the basket of their own understanding, their own philosophy, their own um, academics, or they had to step out in faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the church and some of the leaders find themselves in these spots. And what Paul says is this. He says, so where does this leave the philosophers the scholars and the world's brilliant debaters God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish and then he says since God and his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through here through just ended, he says the world will never figure him out strictly through human wisdom and then he makes fun of himself a little bit. And he says he's used our foolish preaching (laughs) to save those who believe. My foolish preaching can't change your life, but the message, the heart, the one I'm attempting to point you to, if you accept it, changes your life completely. Not just on this earth, but in eternity to try to figure it out through human wisdom and reasoning will be very frustrating. The amazing thing is that there is so much factual evidence to the life of Jesus, to the biblical narrative. Like, I think it's amazing that God and his extreme mercy and grace and knowledge of the world that we would live in, that he provides things like archaeology, that a lot of times for the skeptic satisfies The beauty that there hasn't been one archaeological discovery that disproves or unauthenticates the word of God is fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me that secular archaeologists use the Bible as a map to go on digs. (laughs) Like, that's ridiculous, you guys. Like, they're still discovering Fairly recently, what was thought to be folklore with the Pool of Siloam was discovered. And the story about this person that has been crippled for a lifetime, that people said, oh, it's a fable. Well, the pool was discovered. And the narrative that the Bible produces continues to live. Ancient cities that were folklore. People... going to disprove the Bible and said, okay, it says it's here, here between these two cities, let's stick a shovel in the ground and bink there's the legendary city oh skeptics your answers are out there but can I plead with the Epicurean too it's not worth it for the cynic you can trust somebody People people will hurt you Oftentimes all of these schools of philosophy are exaggerated by personal trauma, just so you know, especially for the skeptic and for the cynic. The cynic oftentimes says, I cannot trust people because honestly on this earth, nobody is 100% trustworthy, nobody. You you need to know that. And some of you have discovered that in a very real way And what you do is you build walls up as defensive mechanisms. Why? Because you don't want to get hurt again because people are selfish, right? Wrong. Jesus. Y'all, Jesus is what illuminates true wisdom. I believe that's what he's doing right now.